for 30. Okay? So, uh, why don't we go to God in prayer now as we prepare our hearts for uh, listening to His Word. So, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we look at your Word, we will treat it as your Word. That we will hear it, we will heed it, we will obey it, we will take it to heart. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be working mightily in each and every one of us so that we will be able to concentrate and apply our minds to your words. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, whenever I try to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people, I always bring them back to the Bible because obviously it is not me who is just trying to uh, share with them my words, but I'm trying to share with them God's words. But unfortunately, sometimes when I bring people back to the Bible, uh, I'm sure some of you have had this experience, they'll say, oh, you know, the Bible... It's just stories, it's just myths, it's just legends, it's just, it's just things made up by people. Well, if, uh, if anybody has ever said that to you, or you are tempted yourself to believe for one moment that the Bible doesn't record history and truth with all the honesty and authenticity there is, then I think we need to look at 1 Samuel chapter 27. Because if we look at 1 Samuel chapter 27, really we see a warts and all picture of the greatest hero of Israel, David. And really, David was Israel's greatest national hero. And uh, yet, if we look at 1 Samuel chapter 27, God's people, as uh, they are inspired by God to record 1 Samuel 27, show David for who he really is, uh, his failures, his weaknesses. So there is no legend here, there is no myth-making, there is the truth and nothing but the truth. Now, up until this point, we can honestly say that David has been a very admirable character. He's been an embodiment of all that's really good. Uh, he's praiseworthy, he's righteous, he is faithful. In fact, as we saw last week, if you look up here on the slide, uh, his final words last week to King Saul, when he let him go the second time, was that the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all my troubles. What praiseworthy words are those, isn't it? David literally says that he will rely on God because God values and rewards men for his righteousness and his faithfulness. And we've seen for nine chapters the faithfulness and the righteousness of David. He's let Saul go twice, even though he could have killed him. He could have killed Nabal, he let Nabal go. He rescued the people of Keilah, even though he was in danger from Saul. He took on Goliath because he, got, he trusted God that God would protect him. So in every way, we think that David is almost a perfect embodiment of the believer, the true believer. But then we look at verse 1 and we find these shocking words. It says, But David thought to himself, uh, I think you have the ESV or the NASB, it says he thought to himself in his heart, One of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines then Saul will give up, give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hands. Now, as you look at these passages, if you just look at this verse, verse, and see what David is thinking, uh, the question that sort of comes to you is, what happened to David? 
Where did David disappear to and who has taken his place? Because in every one of these sentences, he betrays what he has believed in the last nine chapters. The first thing is, David thinks to himself that God will not or cannot protect him from Saul's hand anymore. He, he has a crisis of confidence in God's protection, isn't it? He says there, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. But how can that be? Because we already know that for nine chapters, God has been protecting David and has given David very clear promises that he will be king. And over the last few chapters, it's already been clear that God has been protecting David from Saul's hand. So, 1 Samuel chapter 23, right, next slide, says very clearly, David stayed in the desert of strongholds and the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And 1 Samuel chapter 25, Abigail was sent by God. And what did Abigail say to David? He said, The Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life. The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as a pocket of a sling. Now, if David had taken the promises of God seriously, if he had not suffered this crisis of confidence in God, then he would have known that God would protect him forever and ever from the hand of Saul until he became king. Now, David was probably a bit tired He's very, probably a bit fatigued. Uh, there's a saying which I read somewhere where it says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And uh, for years, probably he'd been hunted down by uh, David, uh, sorry, by Saul. He'd been tracked by Saul. He'd been betrayed by fellow Israelites. He'd been running, hiding, and making last-minute escapes. And like uh, someone said, uh, you know, it's stuff of great movies that makes great movies and great stories, but it takes its toll on real people. And David probably thought, you know, I don't want to live in a cave anymore. I'm sick of running away. I, I don't want to risk life and death all the time. I want to find safety. And he lost his trust in God to provide safety. And instead, he thought to himself, Saul will kill me. I've got to make my move. So what does he do? His solution is, is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Now again, the question is, what happened to David? What, where, who, where has he disappeared to and who is this David who has taken his place? Because the very last chapter, if you remember, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26 up here, David had said to Saul, he said, if men have incited him, right, incited Saul to come after me, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go and serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. And this was just last chapter. This was just, I don't know, ten verses ago. So one of the strongest arguments that David put against Saul last chapter was that if men are inciting him to, to go and fight against David, may they be cursed. Why? Because they were driving God's 
person himself away from God's presence in the land. See, to, to leave the land of Israel was not like migrating to Canada or migrating to Australia. It was literally leaving the presence of God and going to serve other gods or being tempted or encouraged to serve other gods. Because Israel was not just a nation, it was God's people living in God's place under God's rule and presence, worshipping God. Right? So here were God's people in God's place, in God's rule, worshipping God, but David was being forced by Saul to leave that land. And outside the land of Israel, he would be encouraged to, to serve other gods, he would be away from the presence of God. But yet now, we see that that's what David is doing on his very own accord. He's doing it voluntarily. He's going there, away from God's presence, for his peace and his safety and security. He's, he's lost faith in God. He's turned his back on God's presence. Now, if you might remember, uh, earlier on in 1 Samuel chapter 22, if you look up here, uh, 22, you remember when the last time that David had left uh, the promised land, he had gone away to the east, right? remember? And uh, the prophet Gad had said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, but go back, or go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hareth. Okay, so if you remember this map, okay, you remember that he had left his parents in, um, in this place, number 7, in, Miz in uh, Mizpeth, in Moab, and David himself had probably stayed here. But the prophet had told him to go back into Judah, and the rest of the story, if you remember, David is running around, all around this area, okay, is trying to escape from Saul. Now, as far as we know, David has not heard back from uh, God's word to say you can leave Judah, that you can leave God's presence and escape from Saul that way. In fact, one of the most worrying things about 1 Samuel chapter 27, if you actually look at the whole chapter, you will notice that there is no mention of God or the Lord. Okay, that's one of the best things that you can do. You know, I know many of you uh, use your iPad or your iPhone or your Samsung or HTC or whatever brand you're using. And you use your Bible software. If you ever do a search, and you do a search for the Lord or God, you'll find that in every chapter of 1 Samuel, there's a mention of God or the Lord. Except, for 1 Samuel chapter 27. In fact, commentators say that 1 Samuel 20, chapter 27 is the godless chapter of 1 Samuel because there's no God there. David seems to be making his decisions without God. He doesn't consult God. He doesn't use God as a reason. He just thinks for himself. And that is so strange. And what happened to David? He's like missing in action. Because for nine chapters, the, the thing that we really notice about David is He's always following God's will. He's always listening to God. He's always asking God. He's always inquiring of God what to do. He's always doing things because God wants him to do things. When he fought Goliath, he fought Goliath because he said God would protect him. When he was faced with the opportunity of saving the people of Keilah from the Philistines, he inquired of God. When David spared Saul's life, again, it was because of God's will. If you cut David, you sort of think that his blood flowed with the love of God. 
But now, for the very first time, it seems there is no God. He is going to the Philistines without God's will, without God's instructions, without God as a reason. He seems to be doing it by himself. So in verse um, 1, we see what David is thinking, right? And his thinking is not very good. His thinking is not to trust God. His thinking is to turn away from God. His thinking is not to follow God or to listen to God. But from verse 2 onwards, we see his doing, what he does from his thinking. So in verse 2, it says, So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Moek, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag and has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. And David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now, if the first verse shows us David's thinking, then verse 2 onwards shows us his doing, his response to thinking. Right? Because if you think about things, you work out your actions from your thinking. And we can see in verse 4 that the plan of David is successful. He wants to escape from Saul. That's why it says in verse uh, 1 at the end there, I, wa- I want to slip out of his hand, right? And he does slip out of the hand of Saul. Because it says there in verse 4 that once he fled to Gath, Saul no longer looked for him. Uh, David found his... Uh, his uh, El Dorado or his retirement home out west. He went to California or he went to Perth for peace and security and he found it there. But at what cost? What did it cost David to find his peace and security in his retirement home out west? Well, verse 2 is very ominous because it says there, he went over to Achish, son of Moek, king of Gath. Now the word here, went over, I don't know which version of the Bible you're using, it can be went over, or cross over, or go over, it can be used in a geographic sense, right? You know, I, I, I cross over the street to Helping Hand. I, 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 uh, I, go, I cross over the border next week to go to uh, Johor for the church camp. But if you read verse 2 carefully, it's almost as if he didn't go over to the Philistine country, he went over to Akish. He went over to the king of Gath. It's more than just geographic. It's the idea of almost crossing over in terms of your loyalties. So, you know, uh, I guess for those of you who play soccer, it's almost as if uh, I used to support Manchester United, but now I support Manchester City. Right. Well, what sacrilege that is, you know, it's like you've crossed over your loyalties. Or I used to support Arsenal. But now I support Chelsea. Right? It's like, you know, how can you, how can you, you know, you, you, that, that's the equivalent of what's happening. You're crossing over or going over in terms of your loyalties and allegiances. And verse 5 sort of confirms this. Because in verse 5, we, we, we don't know 
the full extent of what David means, what he means in his heart. But this is what he says. Okay? He says, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of your country towns, that I may live there. Uh, why should your servant live in the royal city with you? Now, these are shocking words by David. We don't know what, whether they are really heartfelt, but this is what it cost David to live in his retirement village out west. He was willing to gain the favor of the king of Gath, a king of the Philistines, Akish. He calls himself a servant of Akish, the king of the Philistines. Now these are shocking words because for the last nine chapters, who has David been finding favor for? God, isn't it? Who has been a servant of? He's been a servant of God, the Lord. He's been, he calls himself a servant of King Saul. But now, he says that he's trying to find favor with Akish, the king of, of, of Gath. He's trying to find, calls himself anyway, a servant. He's serving the king of Gath, of Philistine. Now, as we read these passages, I guess it's very easy for us to just skim through and miss the magnitude of what is happening here. You know, for us, Philistine, Philistine, Mangosteen, it's all the same, right? I mean, who, who cares? But, actually, you have to remember that the Philistines were the hated enemies, the lifelong arch enemies of Israel. I remember uh, this commentary made this wonderful example. It says, King David, or the future King David, being the servant of Akish and uh, seeking Akish's favor, was like Winston Churchill during World War II deciding to serve Hitler in Berlin, Germany. Or Eisenhower deciding to go to Tokyo, Japan to serve under Emperor Hirohito. See, that's, that's what David was doing, an equivalent. The Philistines were that sort of enemies to Israel, enemies of God. But it seems as if David has put his trust in these enemies, these Philistines, and sought the favor and to serve the enemy rather than to trust God and to serve God. Now, while he's in the land, uh, you notice here, what is he doing uh, during this time? Now, he's not sitting back drinking his uh, margaritas and bathing by the beach. That uh, David and his men, while he was in Ziklag, they went up in verse 8 and raided the Gershurites and the Gerzites and the Malachites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes, and he returned to Akish. When Akish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of the Judah, against the Negev of Jeremiah, against the Negev of the Kernites. He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought, they might inform of us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Akish trusted David and said to himself, he's become so obnoxious, or in some other translations, a stench to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Chapter 28, verse 1. 
In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. I teach that today that you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Akish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, as David uh, was staying in Ziklag, uh, as we know, he, he says here that all his men came with familiar families. Now, how many men did David have? 600, right? And uh, their families... In those days, most people were married. Their big families, they didn't stop at two. They had many. 600 men plus their wives, 1,200 plus their... I don't know how many kids. Could be 4,000, 5,000 people. Now, in order to, I guess, feed and look after this large population in uh, Ziklag, part of what they did was they went on raiding, raiding parties. And they went out and raided the, the town. Now... If you see carefully, we need to understand exactly what's happening here. It says that David attacked the Gershites and the Gerzites and the Malachites. Now, we, we don't know much of the Gershites and the Gershites, but we do know a lot about the Malachites. Now, if you look here on this map, okay, um, okay this is Philistine territory and the Malachites are down here. Okay, uh, maybe the next map is better. Okay, okay so I, I found another map. Hopefully, you can see I, I sort of blew it out as big as I could. If, you, if your eyesight can't distinguish the greens and the grey, then you might need to see an optometrist. But, but hopefully you can see the difference. So this is Philistine territory, alright? Okay, uh, and then here is Amalekite territory. And here is the area controlled, or estimated to be controlled by King Saul during his reign. So David, Ziklag is probably about here, would attack the people around here, the Gershites, the Gershites. But he would then go south and then move to the east. South then moved to the east and attacked the Amalekite territory, raid the villages, take the food, clothes, right? Now, when he went back to uh, Ziklag, King Akish would say, where have you gone? And he would say, I went here to the Negev area, which is controlled by Judah, which is controlled by King Saul. And this is where I've been raiding. And as a result, Akish was very happy because if he was raiding Judah territory, two things would happen. One, it would mean that David could never return back to Israel. He would be even tied closer to King Akish. The second thing is, he would be weakening Israel's forces and tying up the army down in the south. Okay, so Akish looks out the window or whatever, has his spies, and they say, oh yeah, David's always going down south, but is he going here? In Judah territory, in the Negev, or is he going down here to the Amalekite territory? Well, if David kills everybody, nobody really knows. So Akish really believes David when he says, Oh, I've been going to the Negev. I've been attacking the people in the, in the Judah region. I've been attacking the Philistines. And as we, as we read about uh, what's been happening, as we come to chapter 28, we see that David lies so successfully, his plan, his cunning is so good that King Akish is completely taken in by him. Believes him implicitly. He, did, he, he took the whole lie, hook, line and sinker. Because David says, okay, we are planning for the final assault to break Israel. 
and you and your 600 men are going to come with us and fight with us. And uh, I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life. Now, as we come to the end of this section, we'll find out more as we go along. Uh, just pretend you don't know what happens at the end, right? Okay. When you read this part, you really think that David's plan has failed. Why did David go to the Philistines? He wanted peace and security and safety. He wanted to escape from the hand of King Saul. But now, at the, uh, chapter 28, verse 1 to 2, you actually see that David's situation is actually worse than it was in the beginning. Because he's like painted himself in a corner. He has nowhere to run. He's between a rock and a hard place. He has to fight his own people. If he doesn't want to fight the Israelites, I imagine King Achish would doubt him. And then his life and the life of his men will be in danger. If he does fight against the Israelites, well, he will never fulfill God's prediction of him. He will never become king. Israel will never ever accept him back. But not only that, he'll be fighting against God. And he may actually have to fight King Saul and, king Saul and kill King Saul, even though two times he's already said that he will not kill the anointed king of Israel. See, as we come to the end of this section, we see that David's cunning plan does not lead to the security, the peace and the safety that he is looking for after all, but actually brought bigger problems of its own. David now seems outside of God's protection. There is no God in chapter 27. He has turned his back on God. He's no longer listening to God. He's allied himself with the wrong people and he's facing either death or disaster. He either goes to war against his own people or he turns against the Philistines and most probably will lose. So what are we to learn from this passage? It's not an easy passage to learn from. Uh, like the commentary says, this is a godless passage. There is no God in it. So how, how are we to learn from it? What are we to, 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 to bring to our lives today? Right? I think the first important lesson is to see that David is not perfect. Right? David is not perfect. David seemed to be, in the last cha- nine chapters, the embodiment of perfect righteousness and faithfulness. He was definitely better than King Saul, but he is not perfect. And that's one of the mistakes that we, uh, that we often make. You know, I mean, if, if you, any of you have grown up in church, you go to Sunday school, you might have the impression that King David is like the perfect guy. You know, we, 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 we learn about King David. He's the one that defeated Goliath. We learn about King David. You know, and all these things. But David is not the perfect guy. He has mistakes. He makes mistakes. He has flaws. He doubts God. He sins. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. Now I know that as we read the Bible, we read to the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30, 30 you might say, oh, you know, actually, David is a really cunning guy. He's, uh, he's actually a double agent. Alright? You know, he actually meant to kill the Philistines all along. The problem is that God's word doesn't sugarcoat it that way, you see. Because in verse 1, we know the thinking of David which led to his actions. And his thinking was not, okay, I'm going to bring my soldiers across to the Philistine territory, then I'm going to get King Achish's trust, then I'm going to, going to stab them in the back. No, he went to Philistine territory because he doubted God. He didn't want to listen to God. 
he turned his back on God. So he's not James Bond or Jason Bourne, right? He was, in many ways, as you read chapter 27, uh, an embarrassment. This is a, actually chapter 27 is like a scandal or an embarrassment to God's people. If you were an Israelite reading about David and you read chapter 27, you sort of think, "Wow, this is this is outrageous, right?" Now we must remember who David was. David was God's anointed king. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, next slide. Remember, when he was chosen, he wasn't chosen because you know he was good looking or tall or everything. I mean, you know, he was apparently good looking. But he was chosen because of his heart. He had the best heart of all of God's people. And that's why God chose him. So David was like the best man that God could find among his people. He was like the best of the best in Israel. But yet, he still sinned. He still fell short and turned away from God. And I think if that could happen to David, and he was the best, he had the best heart of all of Israel, all of God's people, then the lesson for us is, even the human being with the best heart will still fail sometimes. So therefore, our faith can never rust, never rest on a human person, even someone as good as David can fall. I remember uh, someone in our church once told me a very sad story of how the person that led them to Christ, Jesus Christ, was no longer a Christian today and how they were really upset about it. I remember in Australia, uh, a pastor was telling me the same thing, how the person that converted them in university was today no longer a Christian. Uh, I remember a, a friend of mine who was uh, an influence in my life. Today as well, this person is not a Christian. Maybe you have been disappointed by other Christians. Maybe you've been disappointed and your faith has been affected. But the truth is, as we look, look at this passage, we'll see that the best human being, the best of the best of God's people, will still fail and still sin and still turn away. So your youth group leader may let you down, your Bible study leader may let you down, a deacon may let you down, an elder may let you down, a pastor may let you down, the bishop may let you down, the pope may let you down. But that's because they're all human. But David was only a shadow or a model of one to come. He was the anointed king, but he was pointing forward to the perfect anointed king. So I'm really glad that uh, Qigong got us to read uh, Acts chapter 2, which, is, uh, which actually points to how Jesus is so much better than David. I know it's a bit small, but I hope you can remember what your, uh, your responsive reading was. It says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. You see, he's just like a human like us, right? He's dead, he's buried, he's here. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact, of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, 
he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what we now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. See, our trust is not on human people, human beings, even if they are as great as David, because they will let you down. But rather, our trust is on Jesus, the one who is fully God and one who is fully human, who the Bible says, never sin. If you put your trust in, 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 in Jesus, you will never be disappointed. So, I guess, inoculate yourself now, get your vaccine in, you will be disappointed in other human beings. They will let you down. They will fail. But never let that affect your trust in Jesus Christ. The second lesson, I think, is the mistake that David made. The fact that he made his plans without God, that he lost trust in God, and he decided to do things outside of God's will. Now, David's plan was to flee the, ha- the hand of Saul, and uh, you know, find his peace, security, his safety. But in the end, he actually put himself in greater danger. He actually put himself at greater risk. And I think the lesson for ourselves is we cannot be smarter than God. If God tells us to do something, it is because it is for our good. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God's will for you is for good as His people? Then you must trust Him. You must obey even if in the short term it means difficulty and hardship. See, in Proverbs chapter 3, up here, right? Oh, I didn't put it down there. But in Proverbs and in uh, both passages in Proverbs, which we're doing in Bible study, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Right? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. See, over and over again, in, uh, in Israel's history, if you read your Bible carefully, you'll know that God told Israel, this is the way to go. But because they wanted to do the logical, humanly reasonable thing to do, they did the opposite. But instead of finding the peace and security that they wanted, they found death and destruction instead. So God told His people over and over again, do not make alliances with the nations around them. Remember? Don't make alliances with Egypt. Don't make alliances with Syria. Don't make alliances with Babylon. Trust in me and I will protect you. But over and over again, God's people made alliances because it was a reasonable, logical thing to do. But instead of finding peace and security, they were, they were always destroyed in the end, isn't it? They were sent to exile. Uh, when God led His people into the desert, God told His people, okay, every day I'm going to give you manna from heaven. You just take enough to eat that day and then I'll give you some tomorrow. Don't collect more than one day. Of course, the Israelites were very logical and reasonable people, right? They, uh, they're like Singaporeans, must stay for another day. But they take more food than they should. But the food rotted. And they were, it was useless. They were taught to trust God every day. Now, I think that that's one of the problems of David and one of the problems of us. Find it hard to trust God. We want to look for peace and security on our own. Do the logical thing, do the reasonable thing. I remember when I first came back from Australia after going to university there, I had a friend of mine who was in my Bible study group 
he went to work at the IT company, and I went to work in the IT company. And we were going to the same church, and he started missing Bible studies. And I said, well, how come you're, you're not coming to Bible study anymore? Oh, he said, oh, no, I'm doing a lot of OTs because I want to make sure I want to get my career going, impress my boss, get promoted. And soon after missing Bible studies, he would miss church. I said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on, you know, on Sunday. I'm doing uh, the shift then. And I said, at the end of the day, today, as far as I know, he's achieved his plan, right? His short-term plan, which was to find security in his career, in his job, in his work. But in his long-term plan, he's nowhere. He doesn't go to church anymore. He doesn't go to Bible study. And anyway, I think even the medium term it didn't work very well because he used to work for a company called Compact. Okay. So anyway, you know what happened to Compact. So anyway, God knows better, right? Okay. So at the end of the day, why do we try to seek to find peace and security outside of God's will? We can never find it. We can use all our logic and reasonableness and thinking, but if we go against God, it is futile. Maybe that's you at the moment. Maybe you're doing something which you think is very clever and smart, logical or reasonable, but it's going against God's will. Well, if you look at the example of David, that's foolish. Because in the long run, in the very long run, you will always lose out and you cannot be smarter than God. So commit yourself to God. Trust God. Even though it means that life is more difficult, but trust Him because He knows what is best for you. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see David as he really was. That he, though as great a heart as he had for you, in this crucial time of his life, perhaps through fatigue or tiredness, he did not trust you anymore. He turned his back against you. He did not seek out your will in his life. He did not listen to you. He put his trust in the Philistines instead of you. Dear Father, help us to see that this was nearly showing us that no human being can be perfect before you. But our trust should instead be on Jesus Christ, who is your Son and is sinless. Dear Father, may we never put our trust or our faith in a human being, but put our trust in Jesus alone. Dear Father, may we also learn from the mistakes of David. And if there are any of us here today who have put our thinking, our logic, or our reasonableness to, to work in plans which are against your will, which puts our trust in other things apart from you, help us through the Holy Spirit to guide and teach us and to show us our error and to help us to renew our faith and trust in you, and to obey you and do everything in your will alone. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.